Hello, I'm Dave Watts, and this is the Redundancy Podcast. The purpose of the podcast is to share the challenges of finding and keeping a job as an older worker. In this podcast, I'm joined by a guest, Professor Sarah Vickerstaff from Kent University in the UK, and we're going to talk about the particular challenges facing women in the workplace. Sarah Vickerstaff joined the University of Kent in 1984. She has both a PhD and BSc in sociology. She's a fellow of the Gerontological Society of America and a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences. In addition to her academic record, she's got significant managerial and wider higher education sector experience. She's currently the University of Kent lead for Athena Swan, SWAN, the Gender Equality Charter. Sarah's main research interests are in the changes to the relationship between paid work and the life course, and in particular at the beginning and end of working life, and she's an internationally recognised professor and researcher into this important issue. Sarah's published three books, five reports, and in excess of 20 journal articles and many book chapters in this field. Sarah, thank you for joining me for this podcast. Thanks. Let's start with your research into the particular challenges that women face when re-entering the workplace. What are those challenges? Well, I think we know from research, my own and other people's, that older workers, normally described as those 50 plus, have difficulties getting back into work if they've been out of work for whatever reason, because they've been made redundant, have been unemployed, perhaps been caring for others, had health issues themselves. Once you're over 50, it's more difficult to get back in. You're much more likely to be unemployed for a longer period of time than a younger person. And for women, of course, they're concentrated typically in particular sectors of employment, sort of education, care sector, retail, public health, schools, etc. So there may be difficulties getting back in. There is ageism in the labour market. There is discrimination employers prefer to employ, if you like, the ideal worker who's sort of prime age, somewhere between 25 and 45, fit, able, available for work. All older workers face challenges, but women may face particular challenges in the sectors that they typically work in. And of course, they may have been out of work for an extended period of time if they've been caring for family. And older women may find themselves in what's called the sandwich generation. So they're looking after younger, maybe children or grandchildren, and perhaps also have elderly parents or elderly relatives or neighbours that they're looking after or looking out for as well. There may have been complex reasons why they've not been at work, so getting back in might be even more challenging for them. And is that a universal issue or is it more of a, if I can put it this way, a first world problem? I think you find it in most sort of first world or western countries that older workers are disadvantaged. In other societies, labour markets may operate in very many different ways, but certainly in some Southeast Asian countries, older workers face similar difficulties. And of course, patterns of female employment vary hugely from country to country. In a lot of Western Europe now, women's participation rates, as they're called, the percentages that work outside the home in paid employment, have increasing and approaching the same levels as, as men. And And that may be not so much the case in some other societies. But there are certainly age issues in labour markets everywhere. 
And what effect do government policy changes have on women? For example, raising the pension age. Well, they have had, in the British case, particular implications because, of course, historically, women had an entitlement to their state pension at 60 and men at 65. And we've seen a fairly rapid rise up to an equalisation of pension ages for men and women at 65 and now rising to 66 for both men and women and up to 67 and possibly beyond. So... For a lot of women in this 50-plus age group cohort now, their expectation for a very long time has been that they would be entitled to a state pension at 60. So their orientation was not necessarily that they would stop working at that age, but the pension would kick in and that would give them some flexibility. So, of course, a lot of women have seen their pension ages uh, increasing. And In the research that we've done in organisations, especially for lower paid, lower skilled women workers in manual occupations, things like hospitality or caring, quite a lot of those women feel trapped in their jobs. They were expecting to be able to retire in their early 60s. Now they're not going to get their state pension until they're 65, 66. And they're really concerned and worried about whether they're going to be able to carry on working in the jobs that they're doing. And they recognise the things I was talking about a moment ago, that it's difficult to get a job when you're over 50. So they sort of feel trapped. They have to stay where they are because the chances of getting another perhaps slightly easier job, they don't feel there's much prospect of that. So I think it really has had a dramatic impact on those lower skilled, lower paid women who are more likely to be doing physically difficult jobs, which we would all find difficult as we aged into our our 60s. An issue brought up regularly with the older workers I talk to is that potential employers seem to believe that once you reach a certain age, your ability to learn, your energy and your productivity falls off. There's this seeming perpetuation of this unconscious or even conscious bias that older workers cannot contribute at the same level as younger workers. The research on productivity in old age actually doesn't confirm the stereotype that older workers are less typically less productive. We tend to feel that people slow down, they may be less motivated when they get older. Those are the stereotypes. Research doesn't really support that, but there is a persistent finding that shift work is very difficult for older workers. And The explanation for that is it's the bounce back issue, that if you're working difficult shifts, if you're working late shifts or split shifts or or very early, so in other words, your kind of normal patterns of sleeping and eating are disrupted, it's more difficult let's say at my age, the age of 63, to sort of do a really difficult shift like that and then bounce back up the next day and sort of feel ready to go again. It's, it's more difficult to do that at older ages than it is at younger ages. So we have to be careful not to fall into stereotypes of older workers sort of somehow being less productive. But certainly certain patterns of working and shifts in particular do seem to adversely affect older workers. But let's be careful here. 
not all older workers are the same. And one of the big problems we have in this area is that we tend to fall, as I'm just doing, into that trap of talking about older workers as if they were a homogenous group. They were all the same. And of course, some 63-year-olds will be able to cope with shifts as well as they could have at 43 or 23. Others may not. So there's huge variations. But in general, shift patterns are difficult for older workers. Well, having just finished a fixed-term contract where there were shift patterns, yes, I'll I'll go with that. (laughs) And it is, when you're finishing late at night, difficult to bounce back for an early shift the following morning. So I'm with you there. Are there any subsections of women that are particularly disadvantaged? I really suppose I'm basing this on women who may be divorced or in a more difficult financial position or it might be more perilous for them. Yes, certainly in the research we've done, we found that divorced women tend to be in a particularly difficult situation with regard to their finances. So they really feel that they will have to carry on working. Now, it depends a lot on the job they're doing, what they're earning, whether they've got a pension. But for a lot of the kinds of women I was talking about in lower paid, lower skilled work, they will not have built up perhaps any real occupational pension or perhaps if they're now automatically enrolled, they're beginning to save, but it's rather late in terms of the impact that's going to have on their income in retirement. So if they've lost access to a husband's pension, uh, which perhaps in a way they contributed to effectively by looking after children so that a husband could work at earlier points in the life course, if they no longer have access to that pension, or perhaps they had to move out of the family home on divorce and, and start renting, then the pressures on their income are really quite intense. And a lot of the divorced women that I've interviewed projects sort of say well I'm just going to have to carry on working for as long as I possibly can because I simply couldn't afford to retire I'm going to be dependent upon the state pension I don't have other savings or or other occupational pensions to speak of so I should just have to keep going and even when I get to state pension age I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to survive really just on the single state pension so yeah divorced women single women may be in the same situation as well or women who have a partner who's had to leave paid employment prematurely for health reasons so they've become the breadwinner in their household they're looking after someone with health issues who's unable to work uh, so that again that's just the one income trying to, to support a household so yeah a lot of the divorced women we've interviewed over 50 in routine manual occupations will say well I just have to keep on working as long as I possibly can but that's a double jeopardy for them then because if they're doing these hard manual jobs where they're likely to have perhaps some medical conditions, because it is tough, some of the jobs, but they have to keep working as well. Are they going to feel that they're not going to be declaring those medical conditions, for example? And we've interviewed women who are quite precisely hiding medical conditions. The typical sorts of things that older people will suffer from, things like arthritis, which if you're doing a job like cleaning, your hands and your knees are probably really beginning to take the strain of the work that you're doing. You're finding it difficult. And we have interviewed people who sort of really need knee replacements or could do with other interventions to help with their arthritis, but who feel if they 
sort of stick their head up over the parapet and say, well, actually, you know, I'm struggling a bit here. I'm probably going to need to be off for a period of time to have a knee replacement that they will lose their jobs. That may be an unwarranted fear. It may be that their employer would perfectly happily accommodate them being off for a medical intervention, but they worry about it and sort of therefore think, no, well, I'll just struggle on. So we've had women talking about taking lots of paracetamol before they go to work and at work to try and deal with aches and pains that they've got. And of course, the work they're doing has probably contributed to their health issues Mm. and is worsening them fairly quickly if they're not seeking adequate treatment for them. So yes, and this really speaks to, again, this generalised view that you sometimes see in the media and in public policy that works good for you. Now, We know that work is good for us in so much as studies of people who are unemployed long term show us that people get depressed, they get demoralised, they don't have enough money to go out and do things that the rest of us enjoy doing. So it, it sort of feeds itself and it's very easy for people to become a bit socially isolated, a bit depressed by their lack of work. So we know that in that sense, work can be very good for you. Gets you out, gives you money, gives you social contact, etc. For older workers and extending working life debates, this is often, well, it's really good for us to carry on working. It will put off dementia, it will keep our bodies moving, keep us active or whatever. And of course, for a lot of people, that may be very true that the stimulation of work is great. But if you've already to some extent been injured by the work you do, for example, diabetes, which is often related to people, let's say in the transport sector, who do work difficult shifts and therefore don't eat properly at the right times a day. Very common for people in the transport sector to develop diabetes as they age, or for cleaners or hospitality workers to have kinds of back and knees and arthritic conditions. If your work has had an impact on your health already before you even get to the age of 50 and beyond, then probably having to carry on working until you're 66 is going to hasten worsening of your health. So I think it's really important that we want to hang on to the idea that, yeah, there's very good things about working, very positive financial and social reasons to work, but not everybody can and not everybody will be able to work later. And indeed, for some, it may be positively injurious for them to have to carry on working. There are age discrimination laws, Mind you, there's a law that says cars can't go faster than 30 miles an hour on the road outside my house. And if I look outside, I see the majority of them are probably ignoring that. Are they helping or hindering women? Well, I think, again, they're helping some women and not helping others. We actually, again, we have to remember that the post-50 age cohort is a very diverse group with very diverse histories, diverse health, diverse experiences, diverse motivations. So it's not possible to talk about these things as having a single effect. I think for some women, age discrimination legislation and getting rid of mandatory retirement ages has been very positive, as it has been for men, because it means you cannot be arbitrarily forced to retire simply because you reach a certain age. And for women who've maybe come back into careers slightly higher up the job ladder in managerial professional careers, had a period out 
when they would have perhaps been building their careers, are building their careers in slightly later age, in their 40s and 50s. They're still on the way up. They can see their careers still developing and not being forced to retire because they reach a certain age and being able to appeal to age discrimination legislation, I think is extremely positive for them. No one should be forced to retire because they arbitrarily reach a certain age. But I think for other, the sorts of women we've been talking about, doing difficult jobs, low paid, without kind of a solid financial foundation that would allow them to stop working, then this whole kind of climate of, well, we're all ageing, we're all living longer, therefore we should work longer. There's no age discrimination now, we can all carry on working, you're not forced to retire. That This has a kind of moral undertow that somehow if you don't carry on working, you're letting the side down. You're becoming one of these costly burdens to the welfare state. And I think age discrimination legislation in an odd way sort of fits into that sort of, well, now everyone can do anything. You can't be discriminated against, which is a good thing. It's obviously good that we have that legislation. But we still have to remember always that not everybody can do everything. People's health is variable. Their job opportunities are variable if you live in some parts of the country i mean the work's not there are there any remedies for individuals or are governments really posing some insurmountable hurdles in some cases well i think that policy has adopted a sort of one size fits all approach pension ages all at a certain age and if you're talking about a diverse population then some will be advantaged and some will be disadvantaged And that narrative of we live longer, we should work longer, privileges a certain ageing trajectory. It privileges those who are well and able to carry on and disadvantages those who are not. So, I mean, some of the things that get talked about are variable pension ages depending upon how long you've spent in the labour market. If you think a lot of people in their 60s now left school at 16 and have worked continuously, unlike someone that, like myself who stayed in education, did a first degree, did a second degree and started working in my, in my sort of early 20s. So a lot of people have already extended their working lives at the beginning as well as the the end. So you could sort of think about think a state pension that relates in some ways to the number of years that have been either in work or available for work. Now, I can't imagine any government anytime soon introducing such a thing. But another thing would be perhaps improving on the routes out of the labour market if you are unable to work. Because what we've seen is that as state pension ages have risen, it's also become more difficult to access uh, disability benefits or other incapacity benefits as it used to be, other routes that recognise that not everybody can carry on working till state pension age. So we've seen this squeezing of a number of different benefits. Other countries have a sliding zone. You can retire, get your state pension between the ages of 63 and 67, say, which is one way of accommodating the fact that not everybody will be able to get 67. But they've made a contribution in their lives and and they deserve a pension at the point at which they need it rather than the point at which we arbitrarily decide is the correct age now. 
Thank you. And that's, that's fascinating. I could talk for hours about this, but <laughs> for my podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much for your contribution and for taking some of your research today. Where does your research take you next? The project that I'm engaged in at the moment is looking at ageism, because I do think a lot of the problems behind the things we've been talking about relate to ageism. And in particular, a facet of ageism that is not much discussed, but we're trying to put on the agenda, which is the extent to which quite a bit of ageism is really disableism. It's really about people's assumptions about people's abilities either cognitive or physical. So we're looking at the extent to which you can sort of say that quite a lot of ageism that people experience is actually about disableism, which would take you down the route of saying, well, what employers, what governments need to think about is the reasonable adjustments that need to be made to allow people to do things, whatever their ability, whatever their age. But also linked to this, we're looking at something which we're calling internalised ageism, because we tend to think of ageism or discrimination more generally as something that's done to people. I'm stopped from doing something because I'm whatever age I am or because I'm female or because I'm a category of one sort or another. But also people internalise stereotypes and they internalise ageism. And in a lot of the case study work we've done, when we interview people, people do mobilise sort of stereotypes about age as reasons why they might not be doing things. So they will say, well, we ask, do you have access to training and development? And they sort of say, oh, yes, this organization's great. Everybody has, you know, I'm a bit of a dinosaur. That's not really for me. So we're trying to look at the extent to which ageism is not just something done to people, clearly is done to people, but is also something that older workers internalize, which affects how they think about their entitlement to jobs. That's where we're going at the moment, looking That's at ageism. Fascinating. Thank you. An aspect there I'd never even considered. Thank you again very much for your time. The podcast is researched, written and produced entirely by me, Dave Watts. And thank you again for listening. I'll be back in a few weeks and my contact details follow next. You can make contact with me via my website, theredundancypodcast.com, which has Sarah's contact details and a synopsis of hers and all the other podcast main points by emailing me at theredundancypodcast at gmail.com or via Twitter with the hashtag at redundancy pcast.